Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations. My guest is Seth Spergel from Merlin Ventures. Welcome to the show, Seth. Let's start right there. What is Merlin Ventures and what do you do there? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. So we are an early stage venture capital fund focused on uh, cybersecurity. And while we're not exclusively focused on Israel, most of our investments are actually in the Israeli market. That's where we've got a, a pretty deep presence. Uh, we've got a, a strong team over there. And so because of that, it's where we see the most deals, and that tends to be where we focus. But really, our the the, the mission of our of our fund is to find companies early on that we think are going to have relevance to larger enterprises, especially federal government, but also large regulated industries. Think energy, financial. Invest in them early on, help them really understand how to navigate the U.S. market commercially initially, and then once they get their their feet under them, help them also access the U.S. federal market, leveraging our sister's company's resources as well. Yeah, I want to get into a little bit of that as well, because that's really, really interesting for investing in foreign companies targeting mm-hmm. our federal market. Like, how does that fit actually happen? Uh, but before you get there, talk a little bit about Merlin Ventures. You Merlin itself has been a company that's been f- around forever. Um, yep. Give me a sense of the, the the idea of spinning out Merlin Cyber and what the focus is. Yeah. So like I, like we just talked about, there's a sister company called Merlin Cyber that's been around for a while. So I think it's, it's about 26 years old at this point. And Merlin Cyber really plays in that federal market or really the public sector market in the U.S., so governments of all kinds. And, and the idea or the place where Merlin Cyber tends to play is helping existing later stage companies that have already gotten that, that commercial traction going, really succeed in the, the federal market as well. So if you look at large late stage companies like CyberArk and CrowdStrike and companies like that, we, we do a lot of work with them. And this is really helping them with their, their larger, more strategic enterprise types of deals. And so like I said, that had been around for a while. And about six years ago, our, our founder, David, had this thought of, could we spin up a venture arm to go find the next generation of company that had relevance to that market, invest in them early, help them grow. And then as we help them accelerate into the federal market, that kind of puts the thumb on the scale as an investor as well, right? And we're we're driving sales, which is also increasing the valuation of the company, and, and we win on both sides. So that was where the idea really came from initially. And then from there, it's it's evolved quite a bit and, and taken us to where we are today. You, you mentioned earlier that there's a focus on uh, Israeli companies. Can you explain? Uh, you're an American VC firm. We are. And you mentioned uh, focus on Israeli companies. Why? And yep. it, it feels like it's a very, very competitive space. A lot of, lot of venture capital activity focused on Israel. Yeah. Are you just joining the noise? How do you separate yourself from what's happening there? Yeah. So like I said, we started out the story of Merlin Ventures really talking about help with access to the government market, right? Leveraging Merlin Cyber's resources. And what we saw was, you know, as a VC that's based in the Washington, D.C. area, right? That, that's where I live. It wasn't a huge cybersecurity or startup ecosystem here to focus on investing in. And so because we didn't have anybody in Silicon Valley, right, and for that matter, we didn't have anybody in Tel Aviv, uh, we just, we weren't really finding the right deals at the right time in their life cycle for when we wanted to invest. But what we saw was our message was really resonating in certain markets. And people like the story of helping access the government market, especially when you start looking at the Israeli market, right? And if you think about the background of Israeli cyber founders, they've all, or almost all of them have come out of Unit 8200, right? The, the uh, Israeli equivalent of the NSA. And so you have this, this group of founders that knows how to work in the government because they've come out of the government. And their first inclination is, I want to go sell to, to other governments. I want to go sell to the CIA and the NSA and all these other intelligence communities. And they're not going to, I guess, is the, the first answer there, right? Those intelligence agencies really like to, to buy American. They like domestically produced technologies uh, and are very hesitant about foreign technologies. A lot of the VCs in the US that say we help startups access the government market tend to focus on 
the DOD or the intelligence community. So my background before this, I was with a VC called Incutel, which was mm -hmm. actually created by the CIA. And we had a, a lot of difficulty dealing with non-US companies. Merlin is a little bit different, right? Because of where Merlin Cyber focuses, which is the civilian market, the non-defense, non-intelligence agencies, we actually have a much easier time working with foreign technologies. And those agencies are really just looking for who has the best solutions out there. And a lot of those are coming from Israel. So our story of we help you navigate the U.S. government market, in addition to now this, this you know, commercial markets, really resonated in Israel in a way it didn't in a lot of other places, because most of the VCs that talk about government weren't talking to the Israeli market. And the Israeli market was really hungry for that government side of things. So yes, we have to have a lot of conversations of, hold up, we're not going to go sell to the CIA, but have you thought about all this other you know, set of agencies that do have an interest in finding the best technology that we can help you access? And so... The way we really got involved in Israel was just as we saw where our message was resonating, we saw an opportunity there. And we also, through some some luck, frankly, got connected with my my now partner over there, Shai, who has a really deep network uh, within the Israeli cyber ecosystem and, and knows how to navigate that market really well. And so pairing up Shai's knowledge of the market with our really unique story has let us go from being somebody brand new to the market over there just a few years ago to now being in, in a lot of people over there's estimation, one of the top cyber VCs in that market and not just an also ran that we, we would have run the risk of being had we not had those differentiations. You're not a traditional cybersecurity VC in the sense that you've raised um, a fund. You're, you're funded out of Marlin Cyber. Can you talk a little bit about your, your, your funding situation? Yeah, so up until now, we have been a single LP fund, which is basically David, our founder, has been our, our sole source of, of investment dollars. Based on the success we've had, frankly, over the last few years, we're, we're actually now in the process of raising a new fund that will have outside investors. But up until now, yes, everything has been done just through David's support. Are you are you focused in a particular stage of funding? Are you in seed stages, Series A, Series B? Are you yeah. leading rounds? Are you just joining rounds? Give me a sense of what your you know, sweet spot. Is. We really focus on uh, seed is our sweet spot, right? And we'll do pre-seed to, you know, seed and pre-seed, it's, it's fuzzy what which is which, um, but we'll do, you know, from the first money in through, we'll go up to series A, but really we tend to do most of our deals at the seed stage. And there's a couple reasons for that, right? One is, you know, as we started working with companies early on, we saw that by the time a company got a little bit further on, they'd already made a lot of decisions. They, they needed a different type of support than the type of support we could give them. And with the network we've built out around commercial CISOs, um, you know, to really help them get their early commercial traction before they're ready for the federal market, we found that we've just got a strong network for helping companies with their initial U.S. market traction. But the other, and the other piece of it, frankly, is the valuations, right? Like as we saw valuations going up and up and up, it just didn't make sense to invest in later stage companies. Um, what we saw was, you know, Shine in particular has a background of working with the earliest of early companies, right? The, the fund he ran before he joined us at Merlin is a pre-seed fund and, and was a very, you know, is a micro fund really focused on the first check-in at, at companies. So he's got a really strong eye for finding these really early stage companies. And if you can find the right companies when the valuation is still much more reasonable, you can generate much better returns. And so that's why we really focus at that stage. And you're leading or are you just joining rounds? Have you? So uh, we do both. Um, we've, we've led a few deals, um, to in particular Cyclops and Tam Noon, you know, I think really strong companies that we were just genuinely excited about being the, the lead investor on and, and really wanted to be the ones to, to help them pull everything together and, and come into the market here. Uh, but we also, I think more so than other VCs that operate in Israel work really well with a lot of the other Israeli cyber VCs. And so we've co-invested with a number of them as okay. well. 
Um, and so we're not always leading. We'll also follow where it makes sense. And you and I are talking on November 6th when Palo Alto just announced yeah. in the last week a billion dollars worth of acquisitions in two companies, Talon Cyber and Dig Security, yeah. which are two both companies that you invested in. So I guess congratulations are in order yeah. there. Uh, can we just yeah. can we just linger for a little bit on the Israeli situation as it stands? I, I imagine yeah. these deals, if it had been reported in the past, so the, these deals were in, in consultations. How are things now? Have things kind of shut down? Or is it business as usual? Is it just people are trying to just piece things together? How would yeah. you describe what's going on there? So I wouldn't call it business as usual, right? I mean, there's obviously a huge impact over there, but I would say... You know, Israel has a long history of having a lot of disruptions, right? Now, this current one is obviously much more dramatic than, than previous ones, but the people over there have gotten very used to figuring out how to continue working in the face of adversity. And so, yes, companies have had to adjust, right? Frankly, I was on a call with, with Talon this morning where they, you know, had their all hands call to, to tell their employees about the announcement. And there were people dialed in, you know, remotely in their fatigues, right? deployed, right? So they, they have people deployed and there's obviously an impact on their ability to, to have those people do their jobs. But all of these companies, every single one in our portfolio, every company in Israel that I've spoken to is making sure that they are continuing to operate and continuing to work with customers and push forward. And the feedback I've gotten from most of them is they very much appreciate people calling and asking how they're doing and, and showing you know support for them. But frankly, like they need to get back to business and are very, very prepared to get back to business, right? And everybody's just pitching in and picking up whatever, you know, slack they need to because somebody is, is unavailable and making sure that customer deliveries happen, that POCs go off without a hitch, that, you know, software keeps running and that customers can use their products the way they're expecting to. And so I would say behind the scenes, yes, there's an impact, but from an outsider looking in, really people are not seeing that impact, right? And, and these companies are continuing to, to operate the way somebody would expect. But but everyone is affected in some way. You mentioned people signing in in fatigues, a yeah. lot of CEOs and so on are in, on duty. Uh, there has to be some sort of long tail effect that we might not see today that'll come down the pike. What worries you the more? What worries you the most as this conflict kind of lingers? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be roadmap, you know, slips, right? I'm sure that that you know, right now they're taking resources that may be thinking about longer term plans and pushing them to support near term needs, right, and backfill where you need. So. Yes, there's going to be that sort of impact, but like long, long-term impacts, I don't know that I agree that there's going to be like a, a huge negative impact to these companies because of this, right? I think if you talk to a lot of people, they're they're coming oh, coming from this saying like we are going to double down on being successful as a as a startup nation, right? And there are people vowing that you know for every negative thing that's happened here, they're going they're going to help support a new startup that comes out of this, right? And so I, I don't know that in the long run, this is going to have a negative impact. I think it's going to have a, a lasting mental impact on the nation. But for the company's perspectives, I think that, you know, especially as they they adjust to, to this and figure out how to, you know, best keep things running smoothly, mm -hmm. like they're going to come out ahead on this. And, and I don't think it's going to really impact business in a negative way in the long term. Okay, at the macro level, uh, help me understand what's going on in the venture market. Usually venture follows the public markets. Whatever the public markets do, that's how venture kind of follows. We've been through these throws. Yeah. We've been through, and you mentioned it, we've been through these throws of uh, crazy valuations, unicorn uh, valuations, lists getting longer. And then we went into the spate of public yep. market crash, VC market starting to dry up, tech layoffs all around the board, a lot of, and, and we went through this period of consolidation. Uh, right out of COVID up to like yep. say a year ago. 
And then now I'm starting to get the sense that the market is starting to, I don't want to say pick up again, but Cisco is in a little bit of a shopping spree. Palo, I just mentioned, is in a shopping spree. There's a lot of acquisition chatter and consolidation chatter at a very high level. How would you describe the VC investment climate, especially for cybersecurity investments? Yeah, so I think, you know, like you said, there's a lot of buying going on right now. And I think it's, there's kind of two categories of that buying I've seen, right? There is the, hey, these companies are running out of money and it's hard to raise funding. Let's go do some, you know, some sales shopping right now. But I think, you know, as as the Palo acquisitions this last week of Dig and Talent have shown, there's also still some really strong acquisitions going on, right? And when companies are showing that they have the growth trajectory and are solving a real problem, companies are still moving forward and, and acquiring where it makes sense, right? And you're sort of seeing this both on the acquisition side and also on the fundraising side of these haves and have nots, right? Where some companies are really, really struggling because it has gotten a lot harder for the you know, non-top tier companies to raise. Uh, but the companies that are the, the strong ones are, are actually still in a really strong position. And you're seeing, I mean, you know, you've seen, I think in the last 12 months, two seed rounds out of Israel that were over $50 million raised each, right? Yes, I wanted to I wanted to touch on that as well. What do you make of, I think it was D-Scope and I don't remember the other one, but there yeah, was a 50 million and a 70 million seed stage investment. I think YL just did yeah, one. Yeah. What do you make of, what do you make of deal sizes? These are anomalies, obviously, but yeah. are we starting to see a recalibration of deal sizes where seed stage rounds are a little bigger and A rounds are a little bigger? Are we getting back to that quote unquote normalcy? Um. I don't know that I would call it normalcy, I guess, when we have, you know, a $50 million seed. But, um, you know, I think if you look at, like I was saying about the haves and the have nots, where you have these certain exits that are just extremely strong, those tend to be the repeat founders, just like the entrepreneurs, right? And so people have seen that those CEOs can deliver, right? And I mean, Ofer, the CEO of Talon, right? This acquisition is uh, Pala's biggest acquisition of an Israeli company. Ofer's last exit was the biggest exit of an Israeli company to date at the time, right? Like he, he's just a CEO who really gets stuff done, right? right. And so, there's a playbook for it, and he's figured out the playbook for yeah. going from point A to point B. Yeah, right? Same with Dan, right? Like to watch either of them operate is just like a lesson in how to run a company. And so when VCs see folks like this saying, "Hey, we're raising money to start a new company," they say, "Okay, yes, it's expensive, but..." like it's most likely worth it because of the return they're going to see on the other side of that, right? These people have proven that this is a, a much lower risk investment relative to others and that these guys know how to build something for the long term. So I think that and that's when you see these crazy numbers. In terms of just overall sanity of the market, right? Like I do think seed rounds are, especially in Israel, still a bit higher than where they should healthily be. And what's the number there? It's like five to eight million dollar range used to be a really solid big seed round. Yeah, and, and, and it still is, right? Like I think you know a, a five million dollar seed round is probably more than norm now, and an eight million dollar seed round is on the higher end. But I mean, it's also a question of when does that happen, right? I think if you look in the U.S., typically you're raising five to eight when you've got some revenue, you've got a product, right? You've shown some traction. In Israel, we see it more often with you've got a PowerPoint, right? Yeah, you're funding ideas. You're funding five million dollar right. ideas. And no, I wanted to question that. I wanted to question right that as well. Like, how do you determine what is uh, someone building a better mousetrap with a, a newer idea versus something truly disruptive that, like an enterprise, like Talent, for instance. You know, yeah. there's an enterprise browser thing. You can see a new category there. You can kind of see the emergence of spending there. A lot of what we're seeing, especially out of Israel, is a lot of copycatting. You know, they see DSPM and then there's 15 DSPM vendors as every VC gets aboard, right? So how do you differentiate between what is 
a better mousetrap and what is truly transformative. Yeah, no, I, lo- I saw somebody writing, uh, I think this morning about Dig, right? And how when they, when, I don't remember which investor it was, but when they first invested, they they came away saying, oh, this is this is so differentiated, right? And, and let's invest in this. And then you suddenly had, you know, 10 others behind them trying to do the exact same thing. And suddenly the market got mm-hmm. a lot more crowded. And when that happens, right? And, and this is the thing, right? Like, I think even if you're building a differentiated technology, unless there's some very specific IP that's going to protect it, it's most likely going to become a somewhat crowded space relatively quickly. At that point, it really comes down to execution, right? And so at these early stages, when you're investing on a PowerPoint, you're investing in the founder, right? And and this is what I was saying about Dan and Ofer and and, and others that, that have done this successfully. Like you look at them and you say, it doesn't matter if there's a hundred competitors doing the same thing. But I was talking to um, one of our advisors two weeks ago about Dig and they said, look, I, I, I looked across a lot of the DSPM tools you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to all of them, but features aside, like the dig team just stood out above everybody else in terms of their ability to to deliver, right? And that's what really made us make this choice, right? And so when customers say that, that's the same thing that investors say, right? Like we invested in dig because of of the founding team, we invested in talent because of that team, right? Like that that's what really drives the success of these companies. The idea of good companies getting easy to get funding, good companies, this idea of profitable growth is starting to like seep back into it. Yeah. Driven by this recalibration that we just went through, which, which is folks are not a growth mindset, spend and burn at, at all costs. We'll raise the next round. There's more of a, a, a recalibration. Are you starting to see uh, uh, Are you starting to see that take root? Focus on profitable growth rather than just growth at all. Yes, um, but at the stage we're investing in, right, a seed stage, there's no such thing as profitable growth yet, right? You've, you've got to build a product. Right. You've got to get it out there. You've got to get ahead of your competitors. And so I do think you have to be intelligent about how you spend your money, right? And we've seen some companies that we, we, we frankly passed on, right? That we thought had really strong ideas and were a good founding team. But like when we looked at how they intended to spend their, their fundraising and sort of the timeline they were looking to spend it in, we just didn't think they had the discipline to survive in today's market. Right. And I think you do need to find those founders that are smart enough to say, okay, yes, we have $5 million and we could, you know, blow it all in, in 12 months and, and be here, or we can make it last a little bit longer and be in a much better position as the market matures to raise that next round and get to the next level. Right. And so there's a balance, right? There's, there's no perfect answer of, you don't want the company that, that holds on to every penny and, and doesn't get anywhere and all their competitors leap past them, but you also don't want the companies that spend it in foolish ways. And so, you know, at the stage we're at, you can't be too focused on growth. It really has to be or on, on profitability, but you need to be thinking about how do you get to that stage. I want to circle back about helping companies get into federal yeah. uh, spending space. Uh, you mentioned they're not going to sell directly to the CIA or directly to the government, but there's a whole other subset of that market there. Right? I'm thinking of like CISA has this continuous yep, diagnostics yeah. and mitigation CTM program. Right, that really outlines where there's some spending to be made around, you yep. know, dashboards, asset management, IAM, and that type of stuff. Can you linger a little bit there and help entrepreneurs understand revenue streams that actually exist that maybe yeah. they're not thinking about? So CTM is a great example, right? This is a program that CISA funds to basically help secure the cybersecurity infrastructure of all the other civilian agencies, right? And the civilian agencies are all the ones that don't deal with, you know, the military or the intelligence community. So a huge swath of the government. And frankly, that's where Merlin Cyber does huge chunk of their businesses through the CDM program, right? And it's helping companies to sell into multiple agencies through that program, right? And so yes, CDM is a great way to do it, but the key is you've got to actually be able to enter the market first and get some sort of traction before you can really justify getting the CDM program to buy your products, right? And this was actually 
one of the challenges we had when we first started Merlin Ventures was Merlin Cyber has historically been very good at working these large programs like CDM. But the reason for that is because we've historically worked with companies that were well-established and already had some footprint in the federal market. And so we could take that, that existing footprint and go to these agencies and say, look, you've got licenses spread all over the place here. Let's consolidate this and turn it into something more manageable for you. That doesn't work for an early stage startup that's just coming in cold. Mm-hmm. And so the last few years, really what we've focused on doing is not how do you take a you know, Series A company and make them capable of selling into an enterprise program, but more how do you take an early stage uh, company and make them so they can sell into the federal market, period, right? Because you have certain barriers to entry that are hard enough for the established vendors, but are impossible for a startup, right? So if you're familiar with something called FedRAMP, it's a mm-hmm. you know compliance standard that startup that any company needs to meet in order to sell a SaaS product or cloud product into the government market, right? It's, it's really about how the government's data is stored in the cloud and how you safeguard that. Well, even for established companies, it, it typically can take over two years and a couple million dollars to get through the process. And so you can imagine for a startup, that's just, I'm not even going to think about that. And if, but if you have a SaaS product, you need that in order to sell into the federal market. And so it's a non-starter. So Merlin spent the last few years actually building out a managed service for FedRAMP, where we have our own platform that we've taken through the process. We've taken all the hits kind of for them. And now we're able to bring other companies in as partners under our banner, under our authorization to bring them into the federal market much more easily. So now these earlier stage companies have a much more predictable and cost-effective way of being able to even sell that first dollar into federal. And then once they get to a place where they've got enough of a footprint, then we can start talking about the big programs like CDM and others. How can a, com- how can a company be ready for that, for, to be ready for you to kind of bring them along? Is there a certain stage and a certain maturity they need to be at? There's not a defined, like a, a exact definition, but I would say it's, it's when companies are comfortable enough in the maturity of their technology that they feel like there's not going to be major architectural shifts in the coming months, right? I mean, yes, every company at some point is going to do a major upgrade and, and that's expected, but you've got to feel like your technology is at a stable enough point that you can spend the resources to take it through a pretty heavy compliance exam, right? And not be constantly swapping things out on the fly. Uh, and companies also need to have the resources to, to spend on remediating any, any engineering findings that are related to it, right? So this is where, again, even though we started out Merlin Ventures about just talking about federal, we realized we needed to be able to help companies get their commercial traction first before they tackle that and built out a pretty big network on the the commercial side, actually, that you and I have talked about in the past, um, Mm -hmm. to help them really build up enough traction and momentum that they can then afford the resources to to spend on getting through FedRAMP. Uh, We we talked a little bit about data security, cloud security. There's a heavy, heavy emphasis there and focus there. What excites you about the future when you think about like really finding the truly transformational things? Everyone is on the AI bandwagon today. Um, I mean, obviously you guys are probably feeling a lot of calls from AI companies, yeah. but beyond that, what, what truly excites you that you see is potentially revolutionary? Potentially revolutionary is a big question. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you touched on AI, right? And clearly AI has gotten a bit overhyped. And I think we're already starting to get a little bit past the cycle there and people are, are starting to poke holes in it. But for the right applications, it, it can do some amazing things. And I think the right applications are not AI in its own right, just going off and doing things on its own. But, you know, when I look at the at, at companies we've invested in, frankly, that are doing really well, like Tam Noon, right? They, they have taken AI and not just packaged it up in a product and handed it off to people, but taken it as a tool to make their own team a lot more scalable. And as a result, what does that, Tamnoon do? So they offer essentially a, a, a managed service for managing CNAP and CSPM uh, solutions. So the idea is 
if I look at any of these existing tools, take Wiz or Orca or, or Prisma, they've gotten so large, so complex that in order to keep up with them, I need a team of 10, 20 people just to to take advantage of, of their findings and make sure I don't have misconfigurations in the tool itself. And so it's only adding to the, the security burden instead of lightening it. So what Tamnoon has done is, is built the technology to basically manage the results coming out of those platforms in a way where instead of needing 10 people to manage one, they can manage 10 customers with one person, right? And really flip that equation. And that's where I think the AI capability really matters, right? When you can make it an extension of a human and allow that person to now have a superpower and start to do a lot more things as opposed to just throwing something up to a machine and letting it magically solve stuff. Because we're just not at the point where we know what to trust coming out of these LLMs and, and, and other AI systems, right? And so having a human that can do a sanity check, but really leverage these tools to, to solve this problem of not having enough resources, I think that that's probably one of the more interesting areas right now for us. I think this, is, this may not sound revolutionary, but the other area where I think there's a lot of opportunity still, and I say it's not revolutionary because I think we've been talking about it for, for years already, but is the importance of identity in a, a cloud ecosystem, right? And that really becomes the centerpiece of all security solutions, right? It's, it's no longer just firewalls and everything else, right? It's all really now about what identities are allowed to access what resources. And if you can do that more efficiently and more effectively, you're, you're basically replacing all the other security right. solutions you've got. And so up until now, there's been a lot of solutions around human identity management, right? But there's still a lot of soft spots around how we do machine to machine identity. And I think there's some, some big opportunities there still about better managing how machines interact with each other, how we find vulnerabilities there, how we handle the credentialing there, and just really secure that piece of, of the infrastructure. Perfect space for innovation because there's like some old stodgy incumbents who are just like, you know, just yeah. it reminds me of the old antivirus into EDR where we had the old Symantec and then these EDR companies came along and it, it, it might not have been revolutionary, but it completely moved the needle. Right. The idea of I am an identity moving a needle beyond what we've seen out of Ping and Ford Rock and SailPoint and those guys. There's a lot of... A lot of money has been spent there already trying to solve it, though, right? I mean, there's a lot of money put there into is, identity. There is, but how many startups. like new novel solutions have we really seen in that space? None, right? So that's why it's still ripe for innovation. And I wonder if it's if it's even tractable and doable because so many folks have taken a stab at it, and now we're, you know. Yeah, I don't think we're going to find like the one giant like this solves everything anytime soon, right? I think even if you look at those companies today, they didn't start that way, right? They started out solving one problem and then just sort of grew from there. Um, but I think we'll, we'll find a lot of pieces to make it better. And I'm sure at some point they start to come together. All right, we're running out of time. I have one last question sure. is how does, how do, how does an entrepreneur, a budding entrepreneur find Merlin yeah. and reach you and why should he find Merlin and reach you when there's, you know, every, every VC has a cybersecurity like arm in there. What, yeah. what, what unique you bring to the table? So let me answer the second piece first. Why us, right? I think if you talk to our entrepreneurs, if you talk to people in our, in our community, what you'll see is we are a lot more collaboration focused, community focused, right? We really want to work closely with the entrepreneurs. We want to build lasting relationships between them and our advisors, right? And we've, we've got hundreds of, of CISOs and other security leaders we work with, and those folks are excited to work with our companies, not because we're saying, I need you to, to take a sales pitch from this company, but because they're seeing the value in the types of companies we're working with and we're providing an opportunity for them to knowledge transfer and really learn from each other. And so, I think if you talk to anybody we've invested in, they'll tell you that the amount of value we bring to them in terms of connections, advice, customers, advisors, 
is it just far exceeds the amount we've actually invested in them from a dollar perspective, right? And and there's a reason we've we've grown so quickly in such a short amount of time. It's it's because the entrepreneurs are talking, our advisors are talking, right? People have seen what we've done and, and are are rooting for us. In terms of how to find us. And what are you looking for? What's yeah. what's the sweet spot that they, is there a category that you're more you know in tune with? I mean, we've talked about a couple of them, but really we're looking for cybersecurity solutions that are relevant for larger enterprises, and we're looking for ideally companies that have defensible technology. Right? It's not something that everybody else is going to copy very easily. Although, as we've talked about, right, it, that that's really hard to do. And, and most importantly, we're looking for the entrepreneurs that even if everybody else does copy them, will still out execute everyone else, right? That, that to us is the biggest factor. But in terms of like specific things, I mean, I can say, hey, look, we'd love to hear about your identity solutions or your software supply chain solutions or whatever else, but it's the ones that surprise us that are the most interesting, right? The ones that we, we weren't even thinking was a category we needed until we heard it and we realized, oh, that's, that's a totally new way of solving this problem that everybody's been talking about for a while. Seth, thank you very much. Thanks. Appreciate it.